welcome you to the Steve Schramm Show. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Hey, we're going to do what we do this week, just about what we do every other week. We're going to talk about apologetics and get into why we believe what we believe. Today we are going to do something a little bit different though today. We are talking about the historical Adam and I want to begin my coverage on the historical Adam research that is being done by Dr. William Lane Craig. Dr. Craig is of course a very influential Christian philosopher who has embarked on a study of the historical Adam, and what Dr. Craig says uh, is very influential in the lives of, Christi- of, of Christians all over. So we're going to talk about that today. Well, as I, as I mentioned, uh, you know, this episode is going to be just a little bit different than the kind of thing that we would normally do, but I have good reason for it, and, and this is something that I feel that would be a benefit to the church uh, and to those who are uh, really concerned with the issue of the historical Adam and uh, affirming Genesis as history, as literal history, as having actually happened, as it seems that later writers in the Bible did. And so we want to uh, affirm that. And uh, I think that, obviously, for the majority of church history, uh, the historicity of Adam has been affirmed. Uh, Adam, uh, of course, being the first man, the Bible calls him the first Adam, and then Jesus Christ redeeming the error of the first Adam coming in what the Bible calls the role of the second Adam in that redemption role, in that the role of the redeemer of mankind. That was what the God-man was sent to accomplish. And so we want to affirm the historicity of Adam. At least I, I sure do. Now, it's no secret that Dr. Craig has staked out a position that he's been vague about it, but uh, he lands somewhere between progressive creationism and theistic evolutionism when it comes to the question of origins. Uh, he, he argues from the Big Bang to support the second premise in his very well-known Kalam cosmological argument. So uh, Craig is certainly uh, an old earth creationist of some sort, but we don't know exactly where he lands yet with respect to the question of uh, theistic evolution, etc. And uh, I really think that through these uh, studies that he's doing of the historical Adam, we will come to find what his position is on that. But Here's where I, I really want to to share my heart here. You know, I really appreciate the work that Dr. Craig does, and, and I, I think that I would lock arms with a lot of other of my fellow young age creationist brethren who would also say that they appreciate the work that Dr. Craig has done and continues to do for Christians. I am a Dr. Craig fan. I'm sorry, I can't help it. I really love Dr. Craig. I love his personality. He seems extremely genuine to me. The more I listen to him and read his teaching, the more 
genuine I feel that he is. And I really do feel like he is approaching this issue with objectivity. Now, um, I still disagree, okay, with some of what he has found so far. But the way that he's nuanced very carefully things to this point tells me that he's carefully coming to to believe what he is. So I want to approach it in that light. I want you to get a feel for where his research is going, but I don't want you to have to have that filtered through uh, voices that are hostile to what Dr. Craig teaches or against Dr. Craig himself. And uh, some people may have a more difficult time understanding where Dr. Craig lands on certain things, etc. So what I'm going to try to do is is cover his research on this. He often puts out uh, information regarding his latest research. No doubt this will result in some sort of a, a book of some sort on this topic. And I am interested to see where he lands with it and why he lands where he lands. So when we agree, we're going to emphatically agree and we're going to point that out and we're going to say why. And we're going to try our best to be objective. When we disagree, same thing. We're going to lay that out. We're going to point out why we disagree and we're going to try to be objective. So um, just consider this coverage of his research. Uh, we're going to start today with uh, by listening to a Reasonable Faith podcast that they put out and stopping it at different points along the way to get a feel for where he's at so far with his research on the historical Adam and Eve and what the future looks like. So Without further ado, we're going to start uh, playing that, and we'll stop it as we see fit and add our commentary where necessary. Dr. Craig, we've known for some time now that your latest topic of study is going to be on the historical Adam, the historical Adam and Eve. You've looked at so many topics and devoted time to them. I'm curious as to what launched you into this, how you picked this as your next area. Jan wants me to write a philosophical systematic theology and a number of other people have encouraged me to do this as well and in order to do this I need to bone up on certain areas of systematic theology one of those was the atonement I felt a real deficit in that area and so I studied that for two years and came to some wonderful insights about that doctrine and offering a defense of the reformers view of the atonement but another area that has been on the shelf for me for years and years and years is the question of the historical atom well, what do we do with the scientific challenges to the historicity of Adam and Eve that arise from paleoarchaeology, which seems to show that anatomically modern humans existed hundreds of thousands of years ago, not relatively recently, as Genesis seems to describe, and then the challenge of population genetics, which some have asserted shows that the human population on Earth today could not have arisen from a smaller population than 10,000 individuals or so, certainly not a mere two individuals. That's Okay, so let me stop there and point one thing out. Certainly you heard him to say that it started with a, a, a couple, that the, the biological diversity we see today started with a couple in the relatively recent past as Genesis seems to describe. Now I've mentioned this in passing once before, but Dr. Craig 
uh, funny enough, is able to give one of the best and well, most well-articulated defenses of young age creationism, as has been historically uh, accepted, uh, that I've heard. I mean, he really, he really can. He wants to affirm that uh, men like Bishop Usher were not stepping too far uh, out of bounds when uh, attempting to form a chronology based alone on the biblical information. Now, of course, as his goal is to write a philosophical systematic theology, he needs to I- incorporate this information with scientific uh, data, the scientific data that uh, seems to be coming in from the different relevant fields. And of course, in, in a similar way, this is what he did with Big Bang Cosmology and the Kalam. He's convinced uh, of Big Bang Cosmology and that uh, that assertion uh, of Big Bang cosmology, of course, serves to underline and underscore um, the arguments and the premises that are uh, there found in the Kalam. So, point being that what Dr. Craig wants to do is not use modern science to interpret the Bible, which he's going to get to here, but he wants to interpret the Bible. Uh, on its own right, and then interpret the science on its own right, and find out what the best evidence seems to indicate from both angles, and then integrate that evidence via a systematic theology. Okay, now uh, there are certainly some points in that methodology itself that I would disagree with, but this is what he's aiming to do. This is the angle that he is, is coming from. So, what I want you to take away right this moment is understand that Craig sees how the Bible uh, could reasonably be teaching a, a, a pair of human beings in the distant uh, or relevant, excuse me, uh, relatively recent past and how they could be responsible for the biodiversity that we find here uh, today. Some point in the past. And so I've taken this issue off the shelf and begun to explore it now with a view toward having a better understanding of Adam and histor- or theological anthropology. So there would be two aspects to the study. One would be the biblical and one would be the scientific. That's correct. I initially began to read some of the literature on population genetics and the problems this poses for a historical Adam. But it soon became evident to me that before dealing with the science, I needed to settle what the Bible itself actually affirms about the historical Adam. And so I set the scientific question to the side and decided to simply study the biblical text in depth with a view toward understanding what the Bible commits us to with respect to the historical Adam. And then after I've completed that, I will take the scientific question uh, in hand and try to see um, how a biblical view of Adam and Eve can be reconciled with the findings of modern science. Now, uh, let me take more time just to point this out. Dr. Craig wants to first find out what the Bible commits us to. Now, understand that just because the Bible commits you to something, that's kind of like a bare uh, minimum, in a sense. Uh, There could be an interpretation that's more plausible than not, on its own, but if the Bible doesn't strictly commit us to it, then uh, it could be that that 
particular interpretation might be superseded by certain pieces of extra biblical data. At least that's how I understand uh, kind of this view that he's taking. But I don't want you to miss that he is committed to first finding out what the Bible does, in fact, commit us to. And if you listen to Dr. Craig's more in-depth uh, teaching series, or if you read any of his books, etc., what you're going to find is that he begins his uh, philosophical inquiry, his scientific inquiry, etc., with the biblical data. Okay, in other words, he does his best to start by affirming, making sure that he's affirming what the Bible affirms and not stepping outside of what the Bible would affirm before he goes any further. Now, I disagree, of course, with Craig on the age of the earth and universe, but he has come to the conclusion that the Bible does not commit us to a certain age for that and so accepts conventional dating. Uh, I disagree, but just because I disagree with him does not mean that he is starting from the wrong foundation. So I want us to try to approach this with the mindset that Dr. Craig is looking at the biblical data first and then seeking to come up with the best explanation of all the data at hand. So let's give him the benefit of the doubt and let's see where he lands. Modern science. I think it's very important that we keep these two tasks separate because we don't want to be reading modern science into the text of Genesis. We want to let the text speak to us afresh as it would have been understood by its author and those to whom it was first read or written. We don't want to impose our scientific understanding of the world on Genesis. We want to let Genesis speak on its own terms. And so I'm bracketing the science and just trying to exegete um, these early chapters of Genesis and then what the New Testament says about Adam. Bill, there's a lot of anxiety over this issue. Have you found that in your Sunday school class? Uh, oh, yes, I've class? been teaching on defenders in this lately, and uh, you're absolutely right. This arouses strong feelings on the part of people who are partisans of different view, and it's been a source of considerable anxiety to myself as well. This is a, a very difficult question to settle. Talk about the two conferences. They were the same conference, but they were met two different times on the historical Adam, and you mm -hmm. attended one of them. Yes, these conferences were organized by a scientist at Washington University in St. Louis named Joshua Swamidas. He is a computational biologist and also a Christian. And he has proposed a model of the historical Adam that he claims will reconcile the findings of modern science that I alluded to with a literal reading of the biblical narrative. Uh, he calls his proposal the genealogical Adam. And he's writing a book on the subject. And with funding from the John Templeton Foundation, he held two conferences at Washington University, which brought together biologists, uh, other scientists, theologians, Old Testament scholars, philosophers, and so forth, to read the first draft of his book and then to discuss it amongst themselves. And he would then take consideration of these criticisms and rewrite for the final revision of his book. And so I recently returned from the second of these two conferences in St. Louis and had a really good time discussing his theories. You look so serious in this picture <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, I, that I see of you attending. Bill, I, I guess most people don't think about that there are so many ways to perhaps interpret the text or 
theories as to who Adam was? What are some of the options? Well, there? let me focus on Josh's view of the genealogical okay. Adam, because that's what the conference was about. And we certainly want to let Dr. Craig do that. Uh, first, let me just mention that there are uh, estimated to be somewhere upwards of 12 or 13, I think, uh, now views on this. There's a really good book uh, that I have not read yet, but I've, I've sort of skimmed the surface of and uh, read some material around that Dr. Bill Barrick a young age creationist and Old Testament uh, uh, scholar and professor participated in this four views uh, on the historical Adam book. Uh, he, I believe, participated with uh, John Collins, John Walton, and Dennis Lamoureux, maybe. I don't know if Pete Enns was, invo was involved. Maybe it's five views. Okay, so I can't remember very well. Uh, but um, he teaches a wonderful class that I'm going to link to in the bottom of these notes uh, from a very, very objective, super humble, young age creationist perspective with, with mutual respect for these Old Testament scholars who disagree with him. And... Um, I want to link you to that because it's one of the best studies, I think, uh, video studies that you can get on Genesis 1 through 11 from our viewpoint that does not engage in just complete uh, bashing of other views. It just really helps to elucidate what some of them believe and, and why we have reasons to, to think that the young age creationist uh, literal historical version of Genesis uh, 1 through 11 is correct. So while Dr. Craig is going to focus on Dr. Swamidas' research uh, in this, which I think is is really good, and we need to uh, we need to hear about it, um, just know that there are uh, quite a, a few views that different folks take on this issue, and by no means is it uh, simple or even consensus uh, within evangelical scholarly circles. Uh, today. He pointed out that as you trace your ancestors back in time, they multiply rapidly. You have two parents, but you have four grandparents. You have eight great-grandparents. So there's a sort of exponential increase as you go back in time. At the same time, the population is decreasing as you go back in time because the population grows uh, over time. So what that implies is that as one goes back in time, one's ancestors begin to overlap with other peoples because there's a declining population but a proliferation of ancestors it means that the same people are ancestors of multiple persons who are alive today and if you go back into the past just a few thousand years kevin you will arrive at a person who is a genealogical ancestor of every person alive on the face of the earth today even in far-flung places like the Hawaiian Islands or Tasmania, every person alive on Earth today will be descended from this person. And Now, isn't this, this is striking. I mean, this is absolutely, this is absolutely uh, striking. We have this genealogical data that points back, lo and behold, to around 6,000 years for the existence of modern humans that we would all share a common ancestor in a single pair. Now, this is really interesting. If you'll remember, just last week, we were dealing with a question about the genetics of Adam and Eve. Now, that's what's really interesting here is uh, the conversation with Dr. Craig here is about to go a little bit different direction when referring to biological information. But we gave good reason 
last week from young age geneticists to think that indeed when we look at the flood date around 43, 4,400 years ago, we have reason to think that we can trace mitochondrial Eve to that point as probably um, one of the uh, ladies or or the ladies, whatever, getting off of the ark. Okay, so um, this is interesting. Swamidas, running the numbers, calculates that in order for everyone who was alive at the time of Christ to be descended from a single human pair, you would only need to go back into the past about 4,000 years. So that Adam and Eve could have lived as recently as 4,000 BC and yet been the ancestors of every single person that was alive at the time of Christ. And so he would say, you can place Adam and Eve anywhere in the, in the recent past, 10,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, whatever, and they would have been the... Now, let's not miss out on something here. Yeah, we're talking about uh, this genealogical standpoint, but if this research holds true, then, of course, biologically the same thing is going on here, right? We, we we have enough biological information from then until now to get to where we are. Now, the difference is that uh, Swamidas, being a theistic evolutionist, is going to want to say that there's biological information uh, coming from elsewhere. And we're going to get to that here, okay? He's going to want to say there's biological information coming from elsewhere. But let me point you back once again to the discussion from last week where we pointed out that we just have a disagreement on in the beginning did uh, Adam and Eve uh, or or does the, the the genetic diversity that we find today depend on having some sort of ancestral data in our genes is, is does that depend on there having been around an initial population of 10,000 or so um, to get started? Or could we get started with only the two biologically? Well, remember what we determined last week is we have a difference in our understanding of that nuclear DNA. And if our understanding of the Bible is correct, then we have good reasons to think that God would preload the original human pair with enough genetic information to be able to produce the biological diversity that we see today. So it's just a matter of foundational starting point that we differ on here. We're coming to some interesting conclusions, uh, I think, already. Ancestors of every person who was alive at the time of Christ and of everybody alive today on earth. Now, the fly in the ointment is that they weren't universal ancestors of everybody who's ever lived. There are other people alive at the time that these universal genealogical ancestors existed. And similarly, he would say that at the time that Adam and Eve were created, there were other people outside the Garden of Eden. Josh would say that it's possible that God created Adam and Eve de novo, out of the dust of the earth, for Adam's rib, in the garden, and that every human being is descended from that original couple that were... Possible? I suppose. Biblical? Well, uh, that's another question. ...de novo in the Garden of Eden. But outside the garden, there were other people who were evolved from more primitive primate forms, your australopithecines and others. And the descendants of Adam and Eve 
eventually interbred with people outside the garden once Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. So, for example, the old question, where did Cain get his wife, mm -hmm. is answered by saying he married one of these women who existed in the population outside the garden. Now, since that... Now, uh, I mean, this is just so puzzling to me because we as young age creationists certainly want to affirm that we have uh, DNA. We have Neanderthal DNA, for example, uh, living uh, inside of us. Um, and we want to affirm that these were all creations of God uh, uh, didn't, um, that resulted from the de novo creation of Adam and Eve. We're willing to accept that Adam and Eve probably looked a lot different than uh, modern um genetically modern humans look uh, today. There were definitely uh, some differences there. And we want to say that Neanderthals and certain other of these other um, uh, hominid forms w were human, uh, not the same uh, species, if you would, of uh, uh, human, but human nonetheless. And we've done uh, some posts and podcasts about that. Now, what Swami Das wants to affirm is indeed that we've got this interbreeding going on. It would be awfully hard to deny that. But how do we handle that theologically? I mean, just reflect on that. Uh, if if they weren't the de novo creations of God and yet they are mixed in the line, does the blood of Jesus Christ cover the mixed creatures who were God's special perfect creation from inside of the garden and who are now resulted as we tend to be today or as others tend to be um uh, are we you know what what happens to those ones who were bred inside the garden outside of the garden etc we don't know um this seems very speculative population had evolved from more primitive ancestors that we share with the great apes like chimpanzees and gorillas uh, and they interbred with the descendants of Adam and Eve that's why our genome is so similar to the genome of chimpanzees and uh, gorillas and other great apes because these great apes are also descendants of these primate forms from which the people outside the garden evolved and so when they interbred with the descendants of Adam and Eve their genetic material was shared and and mixed. And so this would allow us to say that there is an original human couple that is uniquely created by God, de novo, from which all people alive today or at the time of Christ were descended, but is fully compatible with the evidence of human evolution and a larger population of hominins than just two. So that's his proposal in a nutshell. And that handles the biblical data and the scientific data. Well, that's his claim. I think that it does handle the scientific data well, but my reservation would be how well it handles the biblical data. And here I have to confess to being skeptical that this represents the most plausible interpretation of the opening chapters of Genesis. What would you say? Well, you're halfway through a, a study here. Do you devote only so much time? Do you have you Well, given um, my age, Kevin, I can't afford to <laughs> devote a, a decade or more to a chosen research topic as I did with divine aseity or divine eternity. Uh, I completed my study of the atonement in about two years, and I would like to do the same with my study of the historical what I found even in those longer studies was that within a couple of years, one is able to pretty much discern the outlines of the view that one will take. And the remaining time is spent mainly mastering the literature mm -hmm. and, and mopping up to be sure you've read everything on the subject that's of major importance, interacting with objections and other points of view, and 
in my work on the atonement, not having devoted that extensive time to it, I didn't master the literature, didn't read everything else that's written on the atonement. That would be virtually impossible, um, nor interact with all the other views, but simply present the view that I think is most plausible and defend its coherence and, and justification. And I would do something like that with the historical atom. I couldn't hope to assess all of the other views, but what I could do would be to lay out what seems to me to be a plausible alternative and to defend its biblical consistency and its scientific plausibility. That's the project. Looks like that Professor Swamidas has a, a couple of projects that he's working on. One would be the historical atom, like we've discussed, and the other, he says that the debate between faith and science has become so acrimonious, so poisoned, so volatile, that he wants to create a safe space and he wants to create some peace hmm. uh, in this whole thing so that people can actually talk honestly and genuinely, but yet be reasonable and charitable. And he's calling this peaceful science. Yes. A, a website. Yes. And this is a commendable goal, uh, but will it be borne out? Well, no, that's a question. I don't know. Um, I, uh, for one, have not seen the... Uh, evidence that uh, some of these scholars are willing to seriously entertain the young age creationist uh, affirming literature on this. Um, and I don't want to go too far off on that hobby horse, but there are some serious uh, challenges, I think, that we can raise to the uh, interpretations that are being offered in mainstream evangelical circles today that are worth hearing out. And so I'm really just kind of hoping uh, and hopeful that objectivity will reign in Dr. Craig's study and that he will consider some of these things that maybe even some of the other scholars uh, are not. Certainly, he seems to want to say that Genesis fits nicely within this young age creationist paradigm. And so the fact that he is even entertaining a solution like Swami Das, uh, Swami Das is in, instead of some of these other theistic evolutionary offerings is, is really interesting uh, because it seems that if anybody's uh, is going to be able to integrate this seeming that Genesis gives off with respect to a relatively recent creation. Uh, so far, Dr. Swamidas's is, is the most reasonable. Now, do I think it's right? Well, no, uh, I, I don't. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, but again, his view is only available for pre-order right now in his book, so it'll need to be more well uh, understood before I can comment on it much further, uh, of course. But um, again, that's why we have Dr. Craig helping us to... to, to navigate through this as well because we want to see where he lands and why he lands where he does establish this website called peaceful science which emphasizes irenic charitable dialogue as opposed to rage science yeah, right <laughs> you know. between persons of different views this is another one of his projects and apparently he's brought people together of varying views yes in, in the conference in st louis that i attended we had people from different fields people who disagreed with him and one of Josh's uh, most admirable qualities, I think, is his non-defensiveness. He doesn't get his back up when he's criticized. He's genuinely open to criticism and objections uh, and wants to learn from his critics. And so there are actually atheists that participate in these dialogues. And he said it's been shocking to him how sympathetic the atheist biologists have been to his genealogical Adam proposal. Since they don't really care whether it coheres with biblical teaching or not, they weigh it purely scientifically. And they say it's unobjectionable to say that there was this human pair created 
10,000 years ago, de novo, by God, whose descendants interbred with other hominins that had evolved and from whom every human being alive on Earth today is descended. They, they have no problem with it. Bill, as we conclude today, you're studying the biblical grounds. And again, let me say, okay, that we have no problem with this interbreeding that has gone on. But uh, understand the difference in how this is being characterized. The interbreeding, on our view, is with other uh, creations of God who were made in the image of God in this de novo creation. What Josh's view here entails is that creatures made in the image of God interbred with creatures who are not made in the image of God. And the theological problems that that raises are, uh, to me, insurmountable. I really don't see how you can get around such a big problem. So on our view, we can account for this interbreeding and everything. We can account for all the DNA, all the biological data, etc. But we don't have this theological issue of beings made in the image of God producing offspring with beings who are not made in the image of God. Did Jesus Christ die for people who are not made in the image of God? Think about that. Now, are you reading Hebrew scholars, Old Testament scholars? Are you determining what you need to read? Are you putting your list together? Well, I'm definitely reading Old Testament literature right now. I began with a series of commentaries, the most important commentaries on Genesis 1 to 11, and worked my way through those, and then began to read on specialty issues. For example, most Old Testament scholars think that we need to read Genesis 1 to 11 against the background of ancient Near Eastern creation myths. Um, there are resemblances between, for example, the flood story in Genesis and the, uh, as it's called, the Atrahasis epic, which is a an ancient uh, Mesopotamian poem that describes the flood. And then in the so-called Epic of Gilgamesh, another Sumerian Babylonian poem that describes the flood and the building of a boat and a single, well, a survivor with, it, with those he brought on board from this flood. And so I've been reading a lot of this ancient literature. Lately, Kevin, I, I can't believe the stuff I've been reading. I, I've been reading ancient inscriptions from pyramid texts in Egypt and from the tombs of those buried in Egypt because a lot of these creation myths are inscribed in these tombs and pyramids. And so I'm, I'm reading that sort of stuff. It's very, very different from the sort of philosophical work that I'm accustomed to doing. Bill, I'm curious. I wonder if this is an illustration, and you can help us with this. Suppose I were to write a true account of something that happened to me, and yet I used images uh, mm. and scripts from Star Wars, say, in order to illustrate to modern audiences what I'm trying to portray. Now, somebody thousands of years down the road may say, well, he borrowed, mm -hmm. this isn't history, he borrowed from Star Wars. Star Wars mm -hmm. is fiction. Do you think that that was some of the literary technique or genre that was being used that because there were these other myths and, and, and texts that they were... This is sort of the $64,000 question, Kevin, and there's been really an interesting reversal of scholarship on this issue. When these ancient texts were first unearthed by archaeologists in the late 1800s, there arose a kind of school of thought among Old Testament scholars called Pan-Babylonianism. And the belief was very widespread among Old Testament scholars that the biblical stories were borrowed from these ancient Mesopotamian accounts, that it is exactly what you described, a, a method of, of borrowing and then changing certain features, and these got written down in the Bible. That view has now been overthrown. Uh, it is now 
I would say the consensus that the Genesis accounts are not simply borrowed from these other ancient Mesopotamian myths. But what they do share with them is a similar interest in terms of their themes, in terms of their style of literature, so that it's not a matter of sort of just borrowing, but it would be a matter of addressing the same sorts of issues, the creation of the world, the creation of man, a flood that wiped out the human race. These are common to ancient myths. And so there is a kind of literary commonality here between these stories and these ancient creation myths that you find in pagan religions. And I think most Old Testament scholars wouldn't have a problem with saying that there can be a sharing of a literary genre uh, or common themes that are addressed by Israel and these ancient pagan myths. Indeed, what you find in Genesis that is it's really, really startling, it's, it's almost shocking when you compare it to these pagan myths, is the way in which ancient Israel transcended pagan polytheism and so decisively rejected all of the gods and their vile and immoral behavior in view or in favor of this transcendent view of God as a creator of the entire universe, beyond the universe and the creator of the sun and the moon and the stars and, and everything in the world who is to be worshiped and adored alone and who is the source of existence of all these things. When, when you read that against these ancient pagan polytheistic myths, one is almost staggered that Israel could have come up with this mm -hmm. stuff. It, it, you, this is so different that it, it's really, really shocking. And I think for us moderns, because we're familiar with this view of a transcendent creator God, we don't share this pagan mythological worldview. I think we're sort of inured to the shock that these ancient Israelites, uh, in the teeth of this overwhelming pagan polytheism, affirm this remarkable view of the Lord God as transcendent creator of everything else. So it's almost as though the Israelites said to their ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian neighbors, ah, so you've got your creation myths, your primeval myths, all right, well, we've got our own and ours is better. And, and then they tell their creation story, I think, under divine inspiration of what they understand to be the true account. And so I'm attracted to the view that what you have in Genesis 1 to 11 is what the great Assyriologist Torkild Jakobsen called mytho-history. These are historical narratives of things that really happened, but they're clothed in the language of myth, and therefore not to be interpreted in a sort of wooden and literalistic way. Bill, we will be keeping up with your progress on this. And Okay, so uh, you know there you have it. Uh, that that's it. That's the view. Uh, that so far that's that's where we're at uh, with Dr. Craig's research. And of course, you heard him there mention that um, these are sort of a mytho history. And at the end, uh, it started to get a little vague, right? He started to allude to the notion that there might be um, a legitimacy to understanding these things as historical, but they shouldn't be interpret interpreted in a, a wooden, literal, historical manner. Well, you know, that's going to be the difficulty, okay? Uh, really finding out what what kind of license that gives us. As Dr. Barrick uh, points out in one of those video lessons I was referring to much earlier, um, it's basically a myth that a poetic account, even if it were to be actually affirmed as poetic, even a straight-up poetic account can contain extraordinarily accurate historical information. So the question is going to be, what do we mean by it not being interpreted in a wooden literal 
um, kind of historical matter? Well, you know, I think at the very least, we're going to have to affirm what Jesus and uh, other writers throughout the Bible affirm about those events. And heavens me, when we start talking about that, I think we end up with something like what we discussed last week and in episode 89 with Mark Lambert. We start to discern. Now, something you need to understand even about Mark Lambert, about that discussion that we have, is Mark Lambert even understands uh, Genesis to be a little different. He doesn't take it to be this diachronic one after the other kind of account. At least I don't think he does last I spoke to him. Um uh, uh, and so he even, as a young age creationist, sees it differently, and that is the point. Even if you land somewhere different on Genesis, now I am persuaded that Genesis is a literal historical narrative. I think Dr. Stephen Boyd has uh, put that uh, almost to rest. Uh, it's 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 more historical prose writing. Even though it is highly structured and extraordinarily beautiful in its presentation, it still conveys historical uh, information in a prose narrative way uh, with even more markers of that historical writing than some of the later narratives um, in the books of the Kings exhibit. Okay, so let's not forget that. But at the same time, at the same time, let's understand that even taking it in a non-literal way, in some sort of a poetic way, etc., when we move throughout these early chapters of Genesis, we have to really ask what kind of warrant that gives us to interpret, um, what things we can uh, m- massage or maneuver around to get to our view. And, you know, I just really am intrigued to see where Craig ends up on this. Um I'm pretty sure that wherever he lands, I'm going to disagree with him. Um, and I, I don't say that uh, in the sense of just that I'm, 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 I'm out for confirmation bias here. Uh, I know that I already disagree on the age of the earth issue with him. And I don't think that this is going to cause him to change his mind on the age of the earth. But notice the language that he uses when wanting to affirm so heavily that the Bible supports this idea of a relatively recent pair of de novo created um, humans by God. He really, really uh, gives uh, support to this biblical contention, and that is part of his struggle. That is part of this wrestling that is taking place when it comes to trying to form a systematic theology around this and the scientific data. Um, He's concerned that the scientific data says something extraordinarily different than Genesis and uh, believes that um, uh, Swami Das's formulation is potentially helpful. Uh, of course, he expressed his own reservations with it from a biblical perspective. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. This is just the beginning. Let's not draw any premature conclusions yet. I just wanted to cover his research from this angle, get us started with it, and see where it, it takes us. Hey, why don't we uh, close out uh, for today with a word of prayer, and we'll pick up on it uh, next time there is an update from Reasonable Faith. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and want to thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy, for your excellence. God, for just being God, for allowing us to study these issues, for allowing us to come to conclusions. Lord, uh, based on your word and your world, Lord, I pray that in all we do, 
we would honor you. We would seek and strive to do only those things which please you and which bring you glory and which lift you up. Father, we love you. We praise you. And we are tremendously grace, uh, grateful for the grace that you have extended to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone. Well, I, again, want to say thank you so much for joining us here on the Steve Schramm Show. We are just thrilled to be so close now to 100 episodes of bringing you this uh, scientific and theological and philosophical content. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do, and I wish I got to do it more often, uh, full-time. Um, so to that end, if you ever are looking for someone to speak on these kinds of topics to your church, if you're looking for a voice on uh, the toughest issues that are facing our culture today, we would be happy to visit your church to come out and speak to your congregation, to your class, etc., Put us in touch with your pastor. If you're a pastor, uh, just have us in. Uh, we, we come on a love offering uh, basis. We ask that uh, travel expenses be covered, but that's about all past that. And uh, we would just love to come share our ministry with you. So um, if you're interested in that kind of thing, just head over to steveschramm.com slash speaking. You can find out how to get in touch with us over there. And we would be absolutely honored to do that. All right. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you right here. Same time, same place next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.